0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 31, and we'll take a broader look at what's going on across southern Africa after a few episodes, uh, paring closely at the Northern Cape. We'll also have a look at how the Cape government was expanding. Sleeping giants were to awaken by the last quarter of the 18th century, with the emergence and expansion of a number of increasingly centralised chiefdoms in the region between the northern and central Drakensberg and the Indian Ocean. A similar process was taking place at pretty much the same time among the Tswana-speaking societies on the southeastern fringes of the Kalahari Desert. There is not much documented evidence from this region, which makes telling the story slightly more difficult, but as we have heard over the course of this series already, the wonders of archaeology have begun to paint a scientific picture and historians have pieced together some of the emerging states of this time. The final decades of the 18th century were a period of growing conflict among the chieftains particularly those in the middle reaches of the Val River and the Kalahari. The most important of these were the Bafokeng, Bahuruchi, Bahatla, Bakuena, Banguakezi, Barolong and Batlaping. Conflicts between these chieftains had been a feature of life here for some time before the increased violence of the second half of the 18th century, when these societies began developing new dynamics. Archaeological evidence indicates this was a period of generally higher rainfall across much of central and eastern southern Africa. We believe there was an increase in agricultural output, including more livestock and bumper crops. The introduction of maize, or mealies, took place at the same time, and this new innovation imported by European and Asian traders may have also been a factor in the increased population growth. When years of below-average rainfall interspersed those wet years, competition increased. At the same time, the politics of southern Tswana chiefdoms was being shaped by the expansion in trade with the European colonial world, as well as the advance of the frontier of the colonial settlement in the Cape. All sorts of additional evidence has been tapped from records that were kept, travelers' accounts and archaeological digs to reveal that the southern Tswana region lay at the convergence of several long-distance trade routes. Kauri shells and beads from Muslim and then Portuguese traders on the Indian Ocean coast had been reaching the interior for many centuries before the mid-1700s. From the south, the Koikoi intermediaries had been bringing beads and iron goods traded with Europeans in the Cape since the early 1500s. There was a third route where beads came from the Portuguese sphere of influence in Angola all the way to the west, the Atlantic Ocean. Traders on the coast sought ivory, copper, skins and pelts. Goods passed back and forth between the local networks which brought material from around the world into the backyard of people yet to be touched by European expansion directly. These ancient contacts between European and African had led to these political groups and clans inland innovating in order to deal with their new external trading partners. The goods passing back and forth with the outside world meant the leaders who controlled the networks were going to become more powerful as time went on until the age of full-tilt colonialism. Attempts to control trade routes and the disposal of goods began to cause more conflict between the chiefs and other local community leaders and that began in the last quarter of the 18th century. As you have heard already, there was conflict at times, but what was going to change was the organisation of these large chiefdoms and the amount of power centred in the role of the chief. The volume of this trade began to increase by the last quarter of that century, both from the Cape in the south and from Delagoa Bay. By the 1760s, the frontier of colonial settlements in the south had reached the Nouveauveld and Sneerberg mountains. Dutch trekboers were grazing their livestock further north towards the Orange River. Frequent contacts were taking place where only two decades before there had been isolated incidents. Koikoi pastoralists lived along the Orange River, and although it was illegal, the colonists traded across the colonial boundary. Frontier farmers had been secretly bartering beads, firearms, and horses with koi in exchange for cattle. The fact that firearms were changing hands was of great concern to the company back in Cape Town. At the same time, the valuable goods were now heading deeper into the interior, passed on from the Khoikhoi to the Butlaping who were the Tswana chiefdom just north of the Orange River. In the east, there was a marked expansion of trade through Delagoa Bay. At least from the 1750s, English, Indian, Middle Eastern and Asian merchants were arriving in growing numbers to buy ivory from chiefs around the bay in exchange for cloth, beads and metals. The chiefdoms around Delagoa Bay were obviously most affected at first by this trade, but it expanded rapidly inland to the southern Tswana region. At the same time, Trade between the southern Botswana and chieftains to the north increased, stimulated by the Portuguese in southern Angola. This is quite interesting, is it not? A network now stretched from west to east, while to the south, trading items moved from Cape Town into the interior. It was an inexorable flow. The expansion of the Cape settlements brought another fact of life and death. Trekboer and Koi raiding. Official and unofficial commandos were now marauding northwards looking for livestock and also seizing sand women and children whom the Dutch colonists used as domestic workers and shepherds on their stock farms. This was a fluid situation. There were also moves afoot in the Cape through the mid-1700s and into the latter parts of the century in terms of the company administration. Remember, the VOC had now been in control of Cape Town since 1652 and they had to deal with an increasingly rebellious and independent settler sentiment. A decision by the Commissioner Nolthinus to allow Koi to lay complaints about whites before the formal courts caused even more anger to ripple out from the frontiers in 1748. Local prejudices affected the court's attitude. For example, even by the late 1790s, cases emerged, such as one in 1797, where a Koi servant summoned a white woman to give evidence in the Stellenbosch local court. This ended up as a legal debate whether or not the koi could actually order a settler woman to the courts. The Landros thought the koi did have the right, but the Himraden and other company officials did not agree that all people were equal before the law. The prejudice of members of the district courts affected criminal justice, since they were usually dealing with the preliminary investigations connected with postmortems and viewing wounds. They would then rule whether or not a crime had been committed. You can imagine the beatings of koi workers, or even the deaths caused by beatings mostly, did not end up in court those days. So the local Landros would take statements, sort out the details of a case through a hearing, then head off to Cape Town to explain the case and act as the public prosecutor before the Council of Justice. But if this local Landros believed there was no case, that would be the end of that. For example, in 1750, the Swellendam Landros ruled that a slave's accusation that his master had beaten another slave to death was regarded as unfounded. Then in 1752, a white woman shot a koi, koi dead and the Landros ruled that the circumstances made it legal. He had been rude. Not exactly a basis for capital punishment, but you get the picture of how the company and settlers regarded justice. In a nutshell, there wasn't any if you weren't white. This process of justice was going to change significantly, but only in 1812 when the British arrived. Their rulings were going to cause something we call the Great Trek, where Trek Boers took off into the interior and up the coast en masse, believing that black rights were now threatening their own rights, which they believed were God-given. More about that in a moment. As colonial administrative agencies, the district courts or colleges, as they were called, carried out central government policy and reported on local events and issues. They provided the Council of Policy with information on land use and provided background when there were disputes. The Council of Policy took the final decisions, but local boards influenced land issues directly. They also inspected and repaired roads and bridges and paid out what was known as lion and tiger money, a reward offered by the government for the extermination of wild animals around the farms. Although these district agencies carried out important duties, the central government never gave them direct financial aid. All the expenses of a local administration, except the salaries of the Landros and his clerks, were borne by the district itself. The Swellendam College even paid the cost of building its own drosti, the property in which the college met. So these local colleges or agencies levied taxes on cattle and sheep, which varied in amounts and were often insufficient to cover expenses. This then led to borrowing from local businesses or farms and also obviously led to local wealthy elites having an oversized role in decision-making, particularly about these loan farms. By the 1770s, the government granted the request of Stellenbosch's frontiersmen to appoint a felt commandant to coordinate the activities of the commandos. This felt commandant would eventually lead more than 250 burghers and koi in a general commando which was sent out in 1774 to attack the San. These felt commandants were going to be very busy by the last two decades of the 18th century, with two more appointed for the northern and eastern frontiers respectively. We'll come back to this the East later and hear how the new district was created at Graaf Renet in 1785 and would lead almost immediately to a revolt by local Trekboers who were utterly against full government control of their lives. But despite these differences in economic and political orientation between the Western Cape and the frontier zones, the white colonists were essentially a single community with a common heritage. This was reinforced during family gatherings where people of very different social circumstances assembled. This emphasized the closely-knit character of the community, very largely descended from 17th century settlers. Occasionally, an outsider such as an ex-VOC official was accepted into this white community, often by marriage. Family feeling extended to all whites and was expressed through the use of familiar terms like opa, grandfather, uncle or um. Aunt or Tunny, and then nephews and nieces when addressing any other white person of a different generation. The experience of various political institutions, particularly the local government, formed part of this heritage. But the strongest unifying institution, both emotionally and intellectually, was provided by the Dutch Reformed Church. The doctrine of this church was primitive Calvinism, as embodied in the Heidelberg Catechism and the decrees of the Synod of Dort. Its emphasis was on the Old Testament and the doctrine was heavily weighted towards the concept of predestination. This particularly suited the colonial whites struggling to survive in a tough environment and accustomed from birth to treating non-whites as slaves or serfs, and more often than not, even enemies. The Dutch Reformed Church was the Cape's state church, and no other denomination was officially tolerated until 1780, when the Lutherans received freedom to worship. The church was actually a branch of government, the VOC received all new predikanten or ministers ordained by the Kassus of Amsterdam into its service. Local officials then appointed the ministers to churches on the frontier. To exclude undesirables from the Kerkraden or church consistories, the government also appointed deacons. The four elders were elected by the congregations, subject to government approval. Even the ministers regarded themselves as government officials and sided with the VOC against the burghers in most conflict between the two groups, and yet over time, the Turkboers never really thought of the Cape Church as purely VOC, partly because the church's Presbyterian organisation allowed considerable participation by the congregation in its affairs. Each Cape kerkraad or church council, the elders and the deacons, were all frontiersmen or locals. The Cape Dutch population tried hard not to lose touch with the church and its spiritual home was the Netherlands. As they moved further and further away from Cape Town, The Trekboers began to move further away from their Dutch roots. Baptism in particular was very important, and so people trekked great distances to ensure their babies or youngsters were baptized. They also travelled great distances to attend Nachmal or Communion, and that was because there were very few churches at first. Before 1792, there were congregations at only five centres in all of the Western Cape. They were Cape Town, Stenebosch, Drakenstein, Rudersand or Tulbach, and the Swatland, or Malmesbury. So the church was the main instrument of culture and education in the 18th century, since it insisted that all communicants had to be able to read. By the late 18th century, the only schools in the colony were elementary schools run by parish clerks. The only other education available locally was given by itinerant myerstors, usually VOC servants employed by farmers to teach their children. Cape education was really only preparing children for confirmation. It was elementary stuff, like reading, writing, spelling, and maths. There was so little demand for higher education that a Latin high school started in 1714 had closed by 1742 because of a lack of interest. As one visitor noted, what use could anyone make of the learning acquired there in a land where life is still primitive and company rule is law? The Bible was the only book that most Trek owned. The library in Cape Town, which was built by early 1700, contained only Latin works, and these were mainly read by visiting foreigners. Educated visitors commented on the ignorance and lack of scientific curiosity, even of the best educated locals, and these travellers would also be shocked by the farmer's insularity. And of course, this insularity was actually hastening the feeling of a community, of a new people on the felt, the nascent Afrikaner fraternity was developing. The feeling was cemented by the growth of a local variant of Dutch, the Taal, with a simplified grammar and vocabulary including Portuguese, Malay, Koikoi koi words, and of course French, which eventually led to the taal changing significantly from the language spoken in the Netherlands. This was the ancestor of modern Afrikaans. By the 1770s, a social and cultural transformation had taken place at the Cape. It involved two immigrant populations, northern European Protestants, mainly Dutch, German and French, and the slaves, who were mainly blacks from East Africa, with a large group of Malays from the East Indies. The other peoples there, of course, were the Khoikhoi and San. The focal point of the society was really centred on the descendants of the white settlers and the Cape was basically a colony because the community had now grown large enough to acquire its own identity. A similar process was taking place at the same time in Northern America as European settlers emigrated there, pushed away from the continent where the ruling aristocracy ran the show. And like the Americans... The Cape culture had incorporated peoples from diverse cultural traditions, but in the Cape's case, it came with a distinctly Dutch stamp. This had taken place nowhere else in the Dutch Eastern Empire. As the settlers expanded through the interior, the distinctive features of Afrikaans emerged rooted in Dutch Calvinism. They were not interested, though, in converting locals. This would mean their correlation between race and the Christian religion would have been disrupted. As we'll hear in upcoming podcasts, the relationship between missionaries of other faiths and the Trek Boers was one of friction and often violence. While these Trek Boers were a fragment of their parent society in Holland, they began to differ fundamentally with their home state. The more they tried to reinforce the fact they were Europeans adrift on the open felt. And there is a contradiction. In an over-regulated and yet weak and inefficient VOC rule, many traits of Dutch society just did not survive. The 17th and early 18th century the Dutch Republic was a complex society dominated by a rich merchant class whose commercial triumphs made it the most advanced country in Europe. Political liberty was cherished along with art, science and philosophy. The Dutch were industrious and prosperous. They were secure and confident. The Cape burgher, meanwhile, was almost always a farmer or a boer, as they were known and almost the direct opposite of their brethren back in Europe. Apart from a few hamlets in the southwest Cape, Cape Town was the only urban centre. Almost all settlers living there were small retailers or boarding house keepers, indulging in what Monica Wilson and Leonard Thompson called feverish, petty smuggling and speculation when ships arrived. Otherwise, they were a rural people where virtues such as hospitality, frugality, candor and simplicity in dress code and manners developed alongside their insular and complacent character. These people took a great deal of pleasure in arguing with neighbours, as is the way with the sort of insulated people. They also took a great deal of pleasure out of being individuals and even rebels when it came to government administration. The dispersal over a vast distance had created atomized families. The southwest Cape farms resembled large patriarchal estates where many family needs were supplied by slaves and servants. They were incredibly self-sufficient the further they moved from Cape Town and the further they moved from their physical link to the Netherlands, the rougher they became, as traveler C. de Jong wrote in the late 1700s. Class distinctions in the European sense between whites fell away in this uncompromising land. They distinguished between Christians and non-Christians. Free and non-free at first, but this morphed rapidly into the growing gulf between whites and what they called non-whites. The roots of apartheid are to be found here at this time in the later 18th century. Although to many Europeans who visited, the Cape settlers appeared to lead a more prosperous and secure life than the peasants in Europe, de Young, the Traveller noted that even in Cape Town the apparent prosperity and wealth was just tinsel in his words. The apparent security was always tinged with a fear of violence from the slaves. What had emerged over the last century and a quarter was the belief that whites should be allowed to deal with slaves and other non-white dependents as they saw fit without government interference partly because of this fear. The second strong trait that emerged was that the settlers felt they were entitled to as much land as they wanted without paying for it both these assumptions were going to be disrupted by the english in a few years and would be another reason why the trekboers would decide to head off looking for the promised land in the second quarter of the 19th century so now we halt after perusing the cultural change in the cape and in the mid to late 1700s next episode it's back to the frontier stories as the khoikhoi trekboers and san continued their clashes but we'll also hear about social interaction between these different people and the closer, Fascinating times, but unfortunately extremely violent. And by the 1770s, the San were being exterminated in a campaign that would be called ethnic cleansing by any other name. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You can also mail me through my sites, desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at DesLatham. Until next, goodbye.